Well, it's a crazy world that we're living in. Sometimes you want to take it all and throw it in the trash bin. Well, it's just fine to hit pause, relax, and then unwind. And then it's time for the Fletchcast. Okay, everybody, we made it. We're at the first episode of the Fletchcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I'm making this podcast because I love podcasts and I love people. And I especially love talking to people and finding out about them. And I'm excited to share these conversations with you guys. I think that you're going to find these people that I'm speaking with very fascinating. And for me, human connection is such a big thing. We can't understand anything about each other if we don't understand background and context and the complexity of what it is to to be a human. And I feel like in this day and age with Facebook and texting and email, um, we're talking to each other so much less and we're understanding each other so much less. So my hope with the Fletchcast is that I chip away just a little bit at that. But I want to talk to you guys about something. I want to take your temperature on this. And I feel like this is going to be very important in establishing our relationship early on. So one thing that I do, especially when I go to the gym every day, is I'll make a coffee at home in a ceramic mug, and then I'll take it into my car and I'll wedge it down. You know, I have the kind of parking brake that's like the pole brake in the in the middle in between the seats, and I'll like wedge my ceramic mug of hot piping coffee in there. Um, And then I'll proceed to drive to the gym and like every so often have to wrestle it out um, and take a sip of it, hoping that it doesn't spill all over the place in the car. Um, And I was doing this the other day and I was thinking, this is ridiculous. This is preposterous. It's borderline offensive that I do this. There are travel mugs. Why am I doing this? Um, And I'm very curious to know if anybody out there is with me on this. Does anybody make a cup of coffee in a ceramic mug and take it into your car and drive around like a crazy person. Now let's talk about what's happening today. Today I am interviewing Michael Solomon. Uh, Michael is one of the kindest people I know. He has a heart of gold um, and it was a real pleasure to speak with him. So we cover a lot of ground in this interview. We talk about Michael's early life in Texas and how that wasn't really a fit for him and how he traveled to the East Coast for college and started his first job and ended up being there for 18 and a half years. And during that work and that job, he actually ended up creating a position for himself that defined the rest of his career. So we talk about that. We talk about what he did after that point, um, working at the Metropolitan Opera as the senior press manager. Um, And then in the second half of the interview, we talk about a a series of events that happened to Michael that really changed his life and changed how he looks at the world. Um, And I'm appreciative that he was willing to talk to me about this. I learned a lot from it. I think that you will too. And just a disclaimer that in that second half, we do touch on the topics of infection and amputation. So I just want to make sure that you guys are aware of that. Without further ado, here's Michael Solomon. 
welcoming to the Fletchcast today, Michael Solomon. Uh, this is my first uh, interview with the Fletchcast. I have a feeling that this is one of Michael's um, first podcast interviews, but nobody better to do it with than Michael Solomon. So, Michael, thank you for joining me. Oh, you're welcome, Alex. This is such a treat for me, and I appreciate I appreciate being on. I look forward to seeing what all we're going to talk about. So, Michael, you and I met uh, at the Kennedy Center. Um, I don't know exactly when it was. It was probably sometime 10 years ago. Do you remember exactly when? You know, I've been thinking about that, and I don't remember it either. But you're the kind of person who I just sort of feel like has always been in my life. And so it's hard to remember exactly when you came into it. But, yeah, it was probably around 10 years ago at the Kennedy Center. And then like, you know, seeing you on the circuit, like, you know, a thousand times a year at the Kennedy Center, at the Metropolitan Opera in New York, at Santa Fe Opera, wherever there's an opera premiere, like there I was and there you seem to be. So you were always, you were always there um, when I was by myself in a strange city, I'd run into you. Absolutely. And I feel the same way about you, that you're someone I feel like I've always known, which is part of the reason that I I wanted to talk to you. I think you've always had such a warmth and grace about you. And, um, you know, one of the things that I was excited to learn about is, um, you know, all the things I don't know about you, um, because, you know, we we operate in this world together um, in this opera, this wonderful opera world. But there's a lot I don't know about you. So you were born in Texas, right? You grew up in Texas. Well, I was technically born in Missouri, but we moved to Texas when I was very, very young. So I do consider myself uh, a Texan. And uh, recent events in Texas have tested that pride, but I will always be hashtag Texas strong. <laughs> Yeah. And so what was it like growing up in Texas? What was that experience like for you? Um, you know, I look back on it with rose colored glasses, I guess. But um, growing up in Texas was was hard because I, I you know, I, I grew up in a very religious town. It was um, dominated by two megachurches before the term megachurch existed. I sort of knew what it was. Um, and we were Jewish in a in a small little you know, very religious Texas town. Um, I remember like in middle school, I was sort of the bell of the ball because everyone invited me to church because converting me was like the, you know, biggest gold star anyone could get. But, oh, wow. Uh, you know, and I remember always, you know, often being asked, you know, where are your horns? And I remember going back home and asking my parents what that meant and them just trying to, you know, blow that off. Um, but, but it was hard. Like it was no surprise to anyone when I, you know, fled to the East coast for college and sort of never looked back. So, yeah. um, but there's still a lot of things about Texas. I love, I still have a lot of friends and family there. Uh, and, you know, growing up, Texas really sort of made me who I am. So uh, I have to be proud of that because I kind of like how I turned out. Yeah, absolutely. So you're so you're in Texas and you're you're having this experience, and then um, how 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 did you come to classical music, and how did you come to love opera? What where did that come in your journey? So that was sort of a two pronged journey, and one of it came from our temple. Um, we you know we went to temple regularly. You know, I was in religious school, all of that, and. For the high holidays, we hired 
a choir which was led by this soprano named Sheila Kimlico. Um, and she was by, you know, my first experience hearing that kind of voice and the power of that voice over me. Um, you know, to me, she was, you know, she was singing Avina Malkenu, uh, you know, on, on Yom Kippur, but later when I was in an opera house hearing, you know, Brunhilde on the rock, like it, it just really was jarring because that's how I first discovered. And that's how I first fell in love with it was hearing her sing a temple. And she was my first Brunhilde. And I only wish I could have heard her sing Brunhilde. She actually uh, recently passed away and I'm, I'm friends with her daughter on Facebook and she posted an audio clip of her mother singing. And it really just shook me because I could, I could still hear that voice like it was yesterday and it, it still had that power over me. And so I didn't quite understand what opera was, but I knew I liked what her voice was doing to me. And then, you know, by a strange confluence of events, you know, when I was in eighth grade, I happened to see, you know, Fatal Attraction and Moonstruck very close together. And opera features very, very much in both of those films. You know, Moonstruck has a lot going on with La Boheme and the Metropolitan Opera and is a very uh, important scene set at the Met. And, you know, Glenn Close goes crazy to a few tunes from Madame Butterfly and Fatal Attraction. And so <laughs> after seeing both of those films, I, I tracked down at my local, forget if it was Musicland or Sam Goody at the time, over at Broadway Square Mall. And I found a CD called The Movies Go to the Opera. And it had those selections from those two films, as well as a bunch of other selections from films like uh, Hannah and Her Sisters and A Room with a View and all sorts of other movies. And so I listened to that CD and that became, that was sort of canon to me. And that sort of became my entry point. And then, then I just started going to the library and checking out records and singing along into the to the arias at home which i think quite disturbed my parents <laughs> so you're hiding in the library stacks until you can go to college <laughs> and then where do you end up going it had to be the east coast so where was it yes so i ended up at the american university in washington dc um, i had originally really wanted to go to nyu um but for some reason uh the Washington DC of Marion Barry seemed a lot safer to my parents than the New York city of David Dinkins. And so um, with a full academic scholarship, because I was a nerd, I, you know, entered the American university and moved to Washington DC and just instantly loved it. What I found interesting uh, and what we talked about a little bit uh, before we started recording was that your first job out of college was what, 18 years, 18 and a half years, something like that? Yep. I started as an intern at the Chronicle of Higher Education when I was the summer I was 18 years old after my freshman year of college because I didn't want to go back to Texas. And that job, they asked me to, you know, stay past the summer. And I, I had several roles while I was there and it ended up lasting 18 and a half years. Like there was one point in my life, I was 36 years old and it's been half of my life working at the same company. Um, 
which was pretty intense to ponder at the time. So, and so what you eventually during your time there, you became director of communications, right? Right. So, um, you know, I started working in advertising and marketing and, and then for a time while I was in college, I also worked at the front desk at night, uh, cause this was in the era before voicemail. And this was a newspaper that, you know, had late deadlines and worked into the night. And I loved working the front desk at night because I could, you know, as a gossip maven, that was my entree into everyone's lives. So um, I was certainly a, a good point of information back then. But um, they didn't really have anyone doing public relations, and they would come up with big scoops and big stories, but it didn't really resonate outside of their own audience base. And so I had been taking some communications classes at AU, and so I proposed to them to let me try my hand at doing a little PR and promoting the scoops and trying to get editors to be talking heads on TV and things like that. And they let me try it. And I found out I was pretty good at it. And so I eventually, uh, you know, had that as my full-time focus. I, you know, was able to soon hire a staff and, and work with all of my, my good colleagues, most of whom are still really, really close friends in my life. Um, and build a communications department. And I, I, I learned by, by trial and error, you know, other than a few classes at AU, I had no practical experience, but uh, the editors at the Chronicle really, you know, gave me freedom to explore and to, and to try my hand at this thing. And it was, I was, I was very successful and I was grateful for that freedom. And that is that's fascinating to me because everything that I know about you is centered around public relations and publicity. And um, so the origin of that part <laughs> of your career is you seeing a need within the organization and saying, hey, give me a shot to work on that. And then kind of building your skill set um, out of just your drive to, to fulfill something you saw at the at the Chronicle of Higher Education. Right, right. And I think part of the reason for my success is that because I was working amongst really, really talented writers and editors and reporters, I had a good news sense because I knew, you know, what passed in the newsroom as, as news. And I was always surrounded by good writing. And I had, you know, my very first pitches were edited by, you know, some of the best editors in the field. And so I had a real leg up because I felt like when I was talking with, with journalists, I not only spoke their language, but spoke it well. And so um, I, I owe all the, all the glory to, to my editors who helped mold me in that way. No, that's fantastic. And I mean, it's a great example of how mentorship and believing in people and, you know, giving people room to try something that they're excited about, um, even if they don't necessarily have the the background and the expertise is so important, um, which was something that factored into my career as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny, the one of the first people that I hired, um, he was the second person I hired, I believe, uh, had no PR experience, really, but I could just tell by his cover letter and his resume uh, and talking with him that he was the kind of person who could do this job well, because he sort of had the, the knowledge and personality in order to do it. So, um, so I hired him and, and I'm proud to say that today 
he's the managing editor of the Chronicle of Higher Education. So, um, wow. So, absolutely. Uh, I'm, I, you know, just as I'm grateful people took a chance on me, you know, I'm glad I took a chance on him because I think uh, his career has certainly turned out well and the Chronicle is certainly better for it. Absolutely. And so you're at the Chronicle of Higher Education. You've built, um, you know, you've baked yourself into this institution. You've been there half your life. And then in 2011, you go to the Kennedy Center. So what was that transition? What 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 happened there? So I had sort of had my job. Uh, you're sorry, I had sort of had my eye on a job in the opera world for a while. And several years prior, I had actually interviewed for a position at Washington National Opera when it was a separate organization from the Kennedy Center. Um, I had a successful first interview and then they said, okay, well, so your next interview will be with Placido Domingo and we're going to figure out whether we fly you to Los Angeles or fly you to Barcelona to interview with him. And I was like, all right, I'll take either. Like, I'm not picky. <laughs> so um, as it turns out, I was in San Francisco that summer for uh, their summer festival season. And so one of the days when there was no performance, I flew down to Los Angeles to interview with Placido, um, you know, somewhere in the, in the bowels of the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion where LA Opera's offices were are. And uh, we had a great talk and I thought I had it in the bag and then... The next week, they decided that they didn't have the money to fund the position anymore, probably because they were considering flying candidates to Barcelona for an interview, <laughs> which could have been a phone call. Could have but, been a factor. Um, but, you know, who was I to judge? So, um, <laughs> so, and I, I think this was 2008, like right when the world was starting to sort of spiral out of control finance-wise. So... That job went away, and so I thought my chance did. And then when the job became open in 2011, after Washington National Opera had uh, merged with the Kennedy Center, or affiliated with the Kennedy Center, I think is the parlance, I applied again. And this really spoiled me because, uh, you know, I hit send on my, on my application credentials and within like two or three hours, I had a phone call from them to set up an interview. So now, like if I'm ever applying for jobs and I hit send, like I expect an immediate answer. And I realize that's <laughs> not the way things work in the real world. But, um, but, you know, again, I think I was able to show that I had demonstrated experience in public relations and communications and that while I had never you know, worked in the arts world and I had no contacts in the arts world, really, I could speak the language really well because I had been building up in my, in my personal time, such a, you know, not encyclopedic knowledge of opera, but certainly a, a conversant and almost fluent knowledge of it. And so, uh, so John Dow at the Kennedy Center took a chance on me and I'm, you know, forever grateful because I, you know, got the keys to the kingdom and going into the Kennedy Center, I had such a, a great team to work with. And um, the core group in the Kennedy Center's PR department, we still have a, a very active text chat going um, that that really sustains me uh, through through 
times when I'm questioning myself and it's just a great, you know, I get to celebrate all of their successes because they've all moved on to such amazing careers and, and personal accomplishments. And so, you know, and then I get to meet, you know, cool artist managers like Alex Fletcher and that has made all the difference. You know, the Kennedy Center, um, because of its proximity in Washington, D.C., there are always um, notable figures in the audience. And I wonder if in your position um, in press for Washington National Opera, if there are any stories that come to mind about people that you interacted with, people you escorted um, or took care of during their visit to, to see an opera. I, I wanted to cover that and I definitely wanted to, to see about if you have any stories on that front. The, the the most important memories I have with this was being able to work with and get to know Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who of course is everyone's, you know, opera guardian angel. So, and she certainly was mine. And again, I don't remember the first time that I met her. It was probably at one of the sort of after parties um, that WNO would host after an opening night. Um, and I remember working closely with her team and with a lot of people on the occasion of her 80th birthday, um, which coincided with the opening of a new production of Norma, um, starring Angela Mead, which was a fantastic performance. And uh, at that after party, uh, you know, she was serenaded by a few of her favorite singers and was gifted um, this magical scarf that was made by our costume group that was modeled after the scarf that, that Norma's character wore in the opera. And it was just a, a really wonderful evening. And I uh, started seeing her a lot when she would come to the shows and was often kind of by virtue of me being there and me actually knowing a lot about opera and being able to talk to her, uh, you know, would, would escort her around the building sometimes. And then when we were, uh, doing uh, an opera called Dead Man Walking by Jake Heggie. Uh, she gave several interviews um, because the topic of the law was, was part of the opera and she had a lot to say about that. Um, WNO used to also program like an evening with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg where she would, you know, talk about, uh, she would give commentary about opera aries that involve the law, you know, like Carmen has entered into a contract with, you know, with the, the, with the smugglers. And this is what that contract is like. So here's people singing that song. And then she'll talk a little bit about contract law, you know, mesmerizing stuff. But, um, but that was great. And I, I just, I always enjoy the chance of working with her and seeing her and, and then especially her, her team of marshals, you know, I also got to know really well. Um, she was in an opera on the Kennedy Center stage in 2016. Um, it opened very soon after the presidential election that year. And so the timing was, was very right to have Justice Ginsburg on stage. She played the Duchess of Crackenthorpe in uh, The Daughter of the Regiment. And she had a dramatic entrance on stage with my friend Deborah Nan Steele and stole the show, of course. And it was great to see her 
work on stage and she was in awe of everyone, you know, from the makeup artist to her dresser to, you know, to all of the singers. And she was so humbled to be on the stage with them. And of course they were all humbled to work with her. And it was, it was just really fun to witness. And, you know, I had a, I had a great seat to witness all of that kind of history and I'm really grateful. Yeah, I mean, our RBG is certainly, you know, one of the greatest gifts to to opera. I mean, aside from from her being a gift to humanity with all of her work and all of her important work over many decades, um, we in the opera community are very lucky to have had her as a champion. And, and certainly in Washington, I mean, she she lived next to the Kennedy Center. So there's no better place um, to spend time with her and be around her. And I'm sure you had many great experiences with her there. Right. And I, I also loved like with, um, I loved seeing other people's reaction to her. You know, I loved seeing, you know, a group of teenagers who were just touring the Kennedy center, you know, because it was, you know, on their bus tour, all of a sudden here they are, you know, with the rock star of all rock stars in Washington, who's just coming to see Carmen because she likes the opera. So I think that's a good message, you know, that, that, you know, participating in the arts is good for this, is good for the soul, is good for the country, all of that. Um, But right, she was, she was a great ambassador for the arts, for opera. And, you know, I think she was an important part of, of, of Washington in that way. And, you know, she's going to be hard to ever replace like that. Yeah. You're at the the Kennedy Center uh, almost six years, and then a funny thing happens. You you eschew your earlier uh, threats that you would never return to Texas, and you in <laughs> fact do go back uh, to Texas to the Austin Opera, which is a, a really fascinating company in a really fascinating city, and you go there in a position called director of audience experience, which is a thing that most companies do not have. So you make this return to Texas. It's in a very unique position at a very interesting company. Tell me about, about that happening. So that was a great, great experience. And gosh, you know, I, I I wish I had been able to do more there, but, um, the summer of 2017, I started talking with Annie Burridge, who I had known from the circuit, you know, going to Philadelphia, seeing her at Santa Fe, all of those sorts of things. Um, she was the new CEO at Austin Opera, the general director, and she had gotten this grant from Opera America, our national service organization, to fund this position, which was her brainchild, director of audience experience, basically everything that happens when you're at the opera that is not on stage. Um, and I thought it was fascinating because as a, as a big opera traveler, I already had in my head all of these ideas about what I liked and didn't like about going to certain companies. Like I love the way that, you know, Lyric Opera of Chicago lets you order sushi in the lobby. And I love the way that the parking is done at the Lyric Opera of Kansas City at the Kaufman Center. They have really good parking situation there. You know, all of these sorts of, you know, extraneous, useless bits of information would finally come to come to fore at, at like you said, like at a really interesting opera company headed by a woman I 
really believed in her leadership um, and she proved it to me every day I worked with her and would allow me the chance to work at every area of the operation from the development department, to the education department, to the marketing department, to the artistic department. Like my opinion was immediately like valid and valued in each of those spaces. And I learned so much from my colleagues there. And I was only there to, and I was also, you know, just a three hour drive from my parents who live in Dallas, um, as opposed to a three hour flight from Washington. And that was, that was really attractive because I'm getting older, my parents are getting older, and I thought it would also be a really good time to sort of be more in their lives and to get to know them better. And I loved their dogs. So, um, <laughs> so I arrived in Texas. It was originally a, a two-year uh, tenure. Um, and I had a great time and I learned so much and I had a a wonderful experience. And then, you know, one thing led to another and, you know, I went to the Metropolitan Opera. I was really happy in Austin and I was living my best life. And I was living in this enormous apartment that sometimes I would still like walk around in the dark and marvel at how big it was compared to my apartment in Washington. <laughs> Little did I know what I had in store. Uh, but I was in touch with some folks at the Metropolitan Opera whom I had spoken with a year or two prior about a position in their public relations department. And it had become open again. And very, very quickly, I was hired to work there. I mean, I was, I was happily just like eating tacos on a Monday. And by the Friday of that week, I had had two phone calls and a job offer. And so I was really nervous going in to talk to Annie because I didn't want to give up a chance to move to New York and work at, you know, the biggest opera company in the world. But I had made a commitment to Austin and was really happy there. And I did not want to leave her in the lurch in the slightest. And so with so much grace, Annie let me go and encouraged me to take this risk and, and move to New York and pursue my dreams and work for the Met. And so I'll always be grateful to her for that. And so, so off I went, you know, the Texas boy finally makes it to New York, you know, 27 years later. So. Wow. I mean, that there's so much about that. That's really interesting. I mean, um, you know, the uniqueness of the opportunity in Austin, um, the graciousness of Annie to see that this was a big opportunity for you and something you didn't feel um, you could let pass by um, and to encourage you to pursue that. And indeed, like you said, um, now you come to New York, you're at the Metropolitan Opera, which as far as I know, is the biggest performing arts organization by budget in America. I mean, their yes. budget is yeah north of 300 million. I'm sure you know these facts. That's your job. Uh <laughs> without uh, trespassing on anyone's confidence, is there a story you can tell that's a favorite of yours about something that happened at the, at the Met? One story that really sticks out in my mind is in the season that we were about to start where we were performing Wagner's Ring Cycle, which is a four-part like Game of Thrones version of opera. That's fantastic. Uh, I remember that our, our lead singer, the soprano Christine Gerke, was 
coming in to do some photo shoots for us. And it was the first time she was putting on the costume. And, you know, I was with her downstairs while she was putting it on and freaking out and, you know, geeking out. And it was so amazing. And then, you know, we were going out to the plaza in front of the Met for these photographs, which were going to be for the New York Times. And, uh, you know, while the Met is rehearsing and all this is going on, it's also performing, you know, th you know thousands of times a week. And there was a dress rehearsal, um, I think, of something going on on the stage that day. And so there were thousands of school children who were in the Met lobby and on the plaza during the intermission. And Christine comes up the escalator into the lobby to go out to the plaza dressed as Brunhilde. And all of these school children think that they are seeing a superhero. Like to them, Christine Gerke is Wonder Woman and she actually has a cape. And like, spoiler alert, Christine Gerke actually is Wonder Woman, but that's another story. But seeing like the wide mouth reaction of these kids to her and seeing how moved she was by their reaction, you know, the give and take between them was amazing. And while Christine was there to take pictures for the New York Times, I think she spent more time and more of her focus taking pictures with every single kid that wanted a picture with Wonder Woman because that's just sort of who she is because she's fabulous. But um, that was a day where I just thought like nowhere else on earth can this happen right now where, you know, the Wonder Woman of opera, both the singer and the character is here with like 3000 school children and they can't get enough of her and she can't get enough of them. And it's amazing. And so, um, that was magic and that well not to not to that extreme extent that kind of magic happens every day uh behind the scenes and on the stage of the met and so i was uh you know i i'm lucky to be there to witness it yeah i mean the met is one of the places that really you can see opera in its grandest form just because of the size and scope of the stage and the theater and the forces that are required and then the ring cycle um, is just that to the extreme I mean most companies just don't have the capabilities for one reason or another to even put a piece like that on and like you said Michael it's like the Lord of the Rings um, or Game of Thrones of opera and um, and I love that 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 these kids got to witness Christine in that moment. And it was like a Marvel superhero. It was like on yep. that level. Um, it, was, it was amazing. And, and I feel so fortunate that, that I have been able to work on two ring cycles so far in my career, because it's so rare to even be able to work on one, but to, to have done two is, is, is just out of this world. And it's, you know, I'm grateful for that all the time the summer that the ring cycle was happening at the Met. You said that it was your second summer um, in New York. And if I have my dates right, um, that was also the summer that began a really different journey for you that I wanted to talk to you about and that you've graciously agreed to chat with me about. So um, this was June, 2019, right? You were in the subway in New York and what happened? Right. So the ring cycle had ended the month before and I was just... Uh, taking the subway to work, I think probably because it was hot and the subway was air conditioned pretty well, at least my line was. So, um, but it's only two stops. 
So I went down into the subway and the train was coming and I was rushing to get through the fare gate and somehow I slipped and I broke a, um, my fibula on my right leg and I went down hard and was in a lot of pain, but didn't quite know what to do. So I like, you know, limped my way to work um, and then limped my way back to the doctor. My fibula was broken. It did not require a cast, but it required a boot. And so I had to wear a boot for a very long, you know, for a few months or so. Um, and then while I was wearing the boot, because I was putting so much pressure on my other foot, I got an ulcer on my heel and the other in my left leg because I was, I was offloading so much pressure from my right leg. So I upset that and I had a lot of problems with that left heel, which led to some surgery that October um, to try to get that left heel to be healed, for lack of a better word. So then in December, I, I felt I got really sick. At first, I thought it was the flu. Um, I thought it just might be some sort of you know, flu-like problem. I remember it was the day I went home early was the the opening night of the new and the final Star Wars movie, which I had tickets for in the IMAX theater at Lincoln Square. And so I was too sick to go to see the final Star Wars movie on opening night. So that must have been really sick. So I just went home and I was home for about 10 days or so. I didn't leave the apartment. I didn't go to work. You know, I, I missed the... I missed the New Year's Eve opening night gala of Wozzeck because, I mean, what doesn't scream New Year's Eve party more than, you know, Albon Berg? Um, sorry, that's a opera joke for those not in the know. It's the least <laughs> celebratory opera ever. But anyway. um, So I was fighting something, but I didn't know quite what. But it turns out that I had gotten a bad infection. And that infection kind of metastasized because I had a open wound still on my left foot. And so on January 2nd, 2020, some days, you know, kind of etch their way into your memory. And January 2nd is one that always will for me. You know, I hadn't been to work in almost two weeks. And so I just, you know, fought my way to the office that day to get dressed, um, to shave for the first time in weeks. Um, it all took a lot, and my foot had, you know, my foot had blown up so big I couldn't put a shoe on, and so I just sort of, I don't know if I wrapped it in a sock or something, but like, you know, that was probably a sign that something was, you know, amiss, but um, I got to work, and God bless them, like my boss and her boss kind of like took one look at me and was like, you should not be here, you still look very ill, like you need to to go to the doctor and you know it, it turns out later i learned they involved hr to see if they could force me to go to the doctor because they were so concerned and i was still somewhat delirious so i wasn't really probably speaking clearly and wasn't really comprehending their instructions and their pleas i was in such a fog but finally Finally, my boss, like, you know, literally carried me out one of the back doors to Amsterdam Avenue where she put me in a taxi. You know, it's and it's funny what I remember, because I remember this taxi was like, 
you know, like this disco taxi straight out of a, like a Pedro Almodovar movie. It was the world's craziest taxi ride to, to my doctor's office. And then I got to my doctor's office and they kind of looked at me with really wide eyes and put me in a, in an exam room. And then, you know, a nurse came in and like looked at me with these wide eyes and left. And then, you know, five minutes later, they were putting me in an ambulance um, to NYU hospital, which was only a few blocks away. And then I got to the hospital and was in the emergency room. And I, you know, I, I assumed I'd be waiting around five or six hours, but like two minutes later, I had two doctors who came to see me. And I remember they both sat on the bed and one of them, you know, was like stroking my forehead and what little hair I have um, and said, you know, sir, like, we're really sorry to tell you, but you have a bad case of sepsis and, you know, your foot is very infected and you could die if we don't remove your foot. Uh, so I, I remember them being so warm and so kind and I felt so safe, even though I didn't quite know what was going on. And so, and I didn't, I could understand what they were saying, but it wasn't really making sense. And I was just sort of like, okay, like, you know, save my life, please. Like whatever you can do. And so before I knew it, I was being wheeled into surgery. Um, so before, so before that time when you were getting sick, um, you were feeling really ill. Um, you were just sort of thinking, well, something's off. I don't know what the, what's happening. And then, and then from what you're saying, the sepsis actually was affecting your brain as well to a point that you weren't really comprehending fully. Absolutely. Um, and that's what's so scary because I kind of remember now like being, you know, in such a fog. And I remember I remember texting with my parents while I was sick, but then speaking to my parents after I was in the hospital to hear them tell it, like I was texting them gibberish and I sounded like a crazy person and I was getting kind of hostile and I wasn't speaking clearly and i'm usually the kind of person when you text with me like the punctuation and the capitalization is perfect like i you know i don't lolz i spell everything out because i'm an old person so i was texting them gibberish i don't really understand what's funny is i also remember i really had lost my appetite but there was one time during this that i placed a grocery delivery from Amazon and all it was was like Apple Jacks and Hostess cupcakes and Hot Pockets and like crazy like weird food that I usually don't really eat but I was in such a I had such a like brain fever that I was just like grabbing all the comfort food and all of the the processed foods. It was really funny because. Well, that sounds absolutely delicious. I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> I understand that. The, I understand that that was not your normal protocol, but um, I love Apple Jacks. That sounds fantastic. Because <laughs> so, yeah, a friend of mine, after I was in the hospital and she went to my apartment and she was like, Hey, like, do you mind if I have some of your Apple Jacks? I was like, no, please like have as many snacks as you want. Like, I don't know. That was all just like sepsis food. So. Oh my gosh. Okay. So you're, so we'll go back to the hospital. You're you, they've told you this and you're not fully comprehending it, but you're kind of in this mode of save my life, do what you need to do. 
Um, and so they do end up amputating your foot. Yep. So on January 2nd of 2020, I had my left leg amputated below the knee. So I still have a knee. Um, and there were actually two surgeries. There was the one they did on January 2nd that, you know, removed most of my foot. And then a week later, I had a second surgery where they sort of went up higher to, um, to craft what is medically and very unfortunately called my stump. So um, uh, there's a lot of bad nomenclature in this world. Like the procedure that I had was called a guillotine amputation. And then the guillotine amputation leaves you with a stump. So first of all, I think the amputee community needs a publicist to like change all of these words because the terminology is terrible. But anyway. <laughs> well that could that could be one of your new your <laughs> yes. new endeavors. So, so so you're in the hospital through the what the end of January after you have these procedures? Yes, yeah, so I was in the hospital 28 days or so um 4 weeks. So I was in an NYU hospital was great and I I really had um was really lucky to be there. Uh for 2 weeks I was in what's called what's what I what I call like the Four Seasons part of the hospital because it was brand new, built after Superstorm Sandy, like a private room, like 70-inch TV, like iPad at your bedside that you order your food and control the lights and window shades. Like it was the Four Seasons. It was awesome. Then after that, I graduated to the Rusk Rehabilitation Center, which the accommodations weren't so nice, but those are the people that helped me figure out how to live life in a wheelchair and how to care for myself in, in this new way. And so, you know, I, I was grateful for all the help that I got. there. And so at that point, when you're in the rehabilitation center, has your mind started to clear? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it only really took a couple of days. And what was great was that um, when I first woke up and was in like the four seasons part of the hospital, I remembered, I was like, wait, I think my friend Jack works at NYU Hospital. I should text her. So I texted her. I was like, hey, like, I'm on the 14th floor of the Kimmel Pavilion. Like, where are you? And she's like, I'm on the ninth floor. She's like, I'll be there in 20 minutes. And so Jack, who's a, who's a pediatric uh, cardiologist, you know, became a frequent visitor to my room at the hospital and was really a lifesaver in helping me sort of come to terms with what happened to me. Oh, and she's also the one who, who stole my Apple Jacks. So, um, <laughs> so I was so lucky to have her. I, she was a relatively new friend and she is a friend that I had met through a network that I'm very active in. Um, the alumni of the Coca-Cola scholars foundation. Uh, Coke gave me a scholarship when I was in high school and is really good about, uh, connecting recipients of the scholarship throughout all of the years. So I had stayed in close touch with them and had been to many of their events. And that's where I met Jack. And, uh, and Jack activated the whole network. She let the people in the executive office know, you know, within days I had a box of Coca-Cola scholar memorabilia in my, in my hospital room. Carolyn, who is the alumni coordinator, immediately got in touch with me and said, okay, there's a Coke scholar who is a prosthetic limb specialist. So 
I'm connecting you with Nathan so that when you are ready, you can talk about all this with him. Like we got this. And so I, I had this sort of ready-made cushion to land on. And so, um, so Jack especially was one of the first ones to sort of help me come to terms with this. And then um, it was a, it was a couple days after that I, you know, sort of worked up the, the courage to talk to my parents about what happened because I knew that was going to be a difficult conversation and I did not want them to fly into a rage or, or, you know, cause I know, I know their instincts to come and help, but I had spoken with my doctors at the time and, and it was agreed upon that it was better for them to come when I was getting out of the hospital to sort of help me get back into the real world and into my apartment rather than while I was in the hospital and being so well cared for. So that conversation with them went really well. And so um, then, you know, within days, like I was, I was hearing from so many people and, you know, it's like, I think my colleagues at the Met sent out like a mayday signal to the entire opera world. And so, um, you know, soon I had flowers from Alex Fletcher. I don't know how he found out about it, but I guess word travels among our different sort of friend groups, right? Well, it was friend of the podcast and Ford Coates uh, ah. who, told, who let me know about this. Um, and so did when you came out of the hospital, did your parents, in fact, come up to, to New York and help you get settled back into your apartment? Yes, absolutely. They arrived the day before I was discharged and, you know, took me home in a, in a very chaotic Uber ride and then got me settled back in my apartment. Luckily, Jack and another one of my friend, Joanna, um, who lived in New York at the time, had helped, you know, organize my apartment, had helped clean my apartment so that it, I could come back and know that it was clean and everything was, you know, in its place and put away. And, you know, Jack had actually stolen my wheelchair from my hospital room to take it to my apartment to make sure it would fit through the door and, you know, fit into the bathroom and the kitchen and all of those sort of pads that it would need to take. And, I'm so lucky that when I moved to New York, I, I moved into, you know, a doorman elevator building because, you know, little did I know what consequence that decision would have because, because of the elevator and because I had like a fleet of doormen who I had become so uh, friendly with and who were so caring, um, you know, I immediately came home and had a whole group of people looking after me and I was able to come in and out and... I was able to get my groceries delivered and through the door so that after my parents left, um, I was able to navigate those first very unsure weeks when I was in a wheelchair, home, not really sure what was going on, still having a lot of pain, you know, in my, in my stump um, and a lot of residual pain, which is the freakiest feeling in the world is to have, you know, your toe itch or, the bottom of your foot itch, but you don't have a toe and you don't have a bottom of the foot, but yet you still feel that pain. I still have that from time to time in certain ways, but, um, but that was a new feeling. And, you know, it was, it was really bewildering because as you know, like I had a very busy, active, packed life full of travel, you know, full of Broadway shows and full of opera performances. And, you know, I was always on the go. And then just to all of a sudden be confined to my house was, was really, um, was really strange. But 
in that sense, I was also very much a pioneer because this was February 2020. And little did we all know in six weeks, everyone would be confined to their homes. So I was I was an influencer in this segment of life, um, as in others. So absolute, absolute trendsetter. <laughs> that can't be that can't be overlooked. So I I listened recently to a podcast with the stage director Katora Stickan, um, talking about um, when her husband unexpectedly yes. died in an accident. What a shortly, tragedy! Mm. Yeah, shortly after they were married, and one of the points she made that really stuck with me was that when something like this happens and you're grieving, um, everyone is very attentive and supportive and they flock to you and they care for you. But then um, in that second year of this loss, you actually need more help. Um, But, you know, people understandably have kind of gone back to their life. They've shifted their priorities. Um, I'm wondering for you in this time when you came back from the hospital and you had all this amazing help, which is so wonderful. Um, what about as that started to subside? What about as you started to become independent? What did that feel like? That's a really interesting point um, that she makes and, and one that I would I would heartily co-sign. But I think my situation has been a little different just because, because of the way that my experience with my amputation, you know, was overlaid with my experience during the pandemic and all of my friends' experience with the pandemic, I think, I think in some ways we've all been there for each other even more because the pandemic has put so many strains on relationships and friendships and, and so many of us are trying so desperately to keep ties when we can't see each other or um, even talk to each other a lot. So I see that, but, and so I certainly don't, (laughs) you know, so many people were there for me at the beginning, yes, but I certainly don't fault people for, like you said, kind of sort of falling off as they do. One is I think there's there's no playbook for either the person who is in need or their friends of like how to act. And I think everyone is so fearful of like saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing or, um, you know, and I remember uh, just being with a friend last summer and I forget what we were talking about, but, you know, it was like, gosh, that must cost an arm and a leg. And, you know, them really stopping and being like, oh my God, I'm so sorry I said that. And I was like, you know, I think I, like, I've gotten past the point where like, you know, leg jokes like offend me, like by all means, like, you know, make a joke about legs. And there's tons of jokes to be made about legs. It's funny, when you lose a leg, you realize how much of the world revolves around legs. So to, to that point, do you feel like you did mourn the loss of your leg? Absolutely. It's sort of, you know, and even here now, more than a year afterwards, sometimes I still like stare at my stump and I'm like, what the hell happened to me? And like, you know, how is this possible? And like, you know, but then right now I'm so lucky. I have a really strong prosthetic leg that I put on, you know, mostly most mornings, sometimes if I sleep late in the afternoons, but, um, and then I can get up and I can dance around my kitchen to Janet Jackson, just like I used to, you know, it just, you know, I, I probably can't do all of the choreography of the pleasure principle, you know, involving the chair, but, you know, I can do some of it. So, you know, I'm good. 
Again, that's your positivity that I, something I admire so much about you. And I'm curious, um, I'm curious with that positivity um, and with this needing to kind of process all of the different thoughts and feelings that come from an event like this, how has that changed your mindset and the way that you think about things? That's a really good question. And, you know, for someone who's always been like really, you know, sort of like biting and sarcastic and pithy and, you know, sort of caustic and negative and, you know, at least that's how I used to always sort of view myself. Like when something like this happens and you're bombarded with so much love and support and messages of hope, it really does change your perspective and it really does sort of make you sit back and, and, we talk a lot in the, you know, in the amputee community uh, about viewing your amputation as a reset button. And I, I totally believe that. And it definitely has made me be more open to receiving kindness and love in a way that I probably never was before, you know, and accepting help, you know, even though I was fiercely independent, but like, yeah, like I would love some help. You know, and there's no, there's no, there's nothing wrong with asking for help or from receiving help. And I think it also then makes me more genuinely offer help when I see someone in need of help. Um, I see this a lot, like at my, I, I have a great medical team. And what was great about my experience the first year was that my doctor and my prosthetist, I love saying the word prosthetist because everyone thinks I'm saying prostitute. My prosthetist and my physical therapist like laid out a calendar and they were like, month one, this is going to happen. Then in month two and then month four and then month eight and then a year and da-da. And everything they said has come true. But what they didn't really say, like you, like to your point earlier, they only laid out that path for like the first year. And now I'm discovering that the path for the second year and for the rest of my life is going to be somewhat more difficult than, than they had laid out, you know, just because I have a prosthetic leg that fits really well, doesn't mean that I'm not going to develop, uh, you know, a spot to watch tomorrow or that my leg is going to shrink further and that it's not going to fit. And that I'm going to be constantly going. For so, um, so, they laid that out and it's been really good. And I think being able to trust in that, in that calendar was really important. Well, I'm glad that you said that you're, you're thinking differently about help and that you're willing to offer help because there is one last topic that we do need to touch on. And I don't know that it has the gravitas of what we were just discussing, but um, I have in my outline, the fashion. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I've notated in my outline that it's Alex's, not Michael's, which is totally incorrect and totally backwards. Because if we want to talk about my fashion, we're just going to be talking about Joseph A. Bank. But Michael Solomon's fashion um, is something that absolutely must be talked about. So, <laughs> so in the spirit of offering help and maybe in closing our interview, Tell me about your sense of fashion, how you developed it, um, and and any muses that you have. Norman Garrett is a given. We don't need to go into him. But any muses you have for your fashion. Or maybe he's an apprentice. I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> oh, them's fighting words. Um, gosh. You know, it's funny. I don't know. Uh, 
I don't know how it developed, and I don't think anyone really does, but you know, when I was growing up, my father was actually um, in fashion. He was the manager of like the the fancy ladies boutique in our small town of Tyler, Texas. And so he was always in fashion, and I, you know, at growing up, like we'd all have dinner together and watch Mash, and then usually we'd all go to Dad's store, and I would do my homework in the break room, and mom would shop and dad would like do work. So um, I guess I kind of grew up with that kind of in the spirit. And then what's funny is dad got out of fashion. And then um, when I was in college and my parents moved from Tyler to Dallas, then my mom started working in fashion and, you know, was just going to take a sales job on the sly, but then of course became like the number one salesperson in the store. And, and then, so fashion was always like in the ether and I don't know quite how I absorbed it, but um, my fashion certainly wouldn't fit in in Tyler, Texas anymore. But I don't know. I think, you know, I was also, I was overweight for a launch part of my life, um, you know, and, and more recently since my amputation that has certainly um, come back, you know, the COVID X where X is an integer between 10 and infinity. Um, but I've always just loved it and I've always loved bright colors and I always just rejected the fact that everything at, you know, at J crew was either like Brown or beige or gray or grayish or sand or, you know, mutton or whatever, you know, synonym for Brown they have. And so I always just really liked colors. And then I spent a semester in college um, in Rome at the American university of Rome. And that was really pivotal because I went to Rome wearing, you know, Gap rugby shirts and Lee jeans, and I came back from Rome with like a Prada backpack and an attitude. And so I kind of never looked back. And so I just love it. It gives me something to do. Like I said, it's in the ether, and I love mixing bright colors and 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 crazy things. And especially now in New York, like I can get away with it because I can dress crazy and bright and and nutty, but, you know, there's 50 people on the subway car who are dressed even brighter and more garishly. So I love it. Um, well, well, thank God for Rome is all I have to say, <laughs> because, you know, to go back to a point you made at the beginning of this podcast, um, in the normal non-COVID times, you and I do see each other at a lot of different places and we have, and I've always loved to see the bright colors you're wearing, but I've also loved <laughs> to see the bright and the welcoming demeanor that comes with it. And I want to thank you so much for sitting down with me, for being part of the Fletch cast, for speaking with me openly and honestly um, about fashion and about other things. Um, <laughs> and thank you so much, Michael. Oh, thank you, Alex. This has been a real treat. Um, I, I look forward to seeing where the Fletch cast goes in the future. So thank you for letting me be a part of it. Only to the top, baby. Thank you, Michael. Thanks. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Michael Solomon. He's such a wonderful guy, and it really was a pleasure to speak with him. So right now, if you're ready for another dose of the Fletchcast, it's there, baby. It's up, episode two, with Mark Williams. Mark Williams is a longtime friend of mine. He is a multifaceted guy, a multi-talented guy, 
we talk about a variety of issues, some serious, some more casual, which is the point of this whole thing. And it was great to connect with him. So if you're ready for more Fletchcast, and why wouldn't you be? That episode is available now wherever you found this one, episode two with Mark Williams. Thanks, guys, and I will see you next time for the next Mental Staycation with the Fletchcast. Ha, 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 ha.